Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning back to the Gospel of Luke. To the Gospel of Luke as we have the privilege of continuing our exposition of this Gospel. Studying the life of Christ. And seeing this morning one of the harshest rebukes that Jesus gives during his life and ministry. Our text this morning is Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. Follow along with me there. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you were witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak to him about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray together. God, we come before you as needy children, needing your truth, your presence, needing the grace and strength of your spirit, needing to have our minds renewed, indeed, Lord, even transformed through Christ your Son. Lord, as we hear our Savior speak so severely we see the great peril of hypocrisy. Save us from this peril, O God. Guide us now in truth and righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen. What if you heard Jesus say to you, your soul is like an unmarked grave? This is a very hard text this morning, brothers and sisters. This, this text doesn't sound like a, a kind and a loving Savior. Some liberal scholars have dared, dared to suggest that this didn't even happen. 
They want to say that, you know, Jesus is a Savior who focuses on love and forgiveness and not condemnation, and therefore he would have never said things like this. But those liberal scholars are making a false dichotomy. There is not an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of love. There is, there is one God who is holy and righteous and merciful and loving. He sits enthroned as the creator and the judge over the whole universe. And he also sent his only son to die on a cross to save sinners who could not save themselves. But that takes us to the question of the moment, right? Then why is Jesus saying this? Well, when we think of the gravest dangers facing the church, it's not false religions, nor is it a hateful culture, nor is it even heretics in the church. Those are all very serious, but the gravest danger to the church is theologically informed, religiously active, morally conservative people whose hearts are devoid of Christ. Let me say that again. The greatest danger to the church is theologically informed, religiously active, morally conservative people whose hearts are devoid of Christ. As Philip Graham Ryken said in his commentary, nothing is deadlier to a life of true godliness than spiritual hypocrisy. And that's why Jesus gave these religious leaders such a scathing rebuke. They were the religious leaders of Israel. They had the scriptures, but rather than leading people to God, they were leading him away, leading them away from God by their actions and by their very teaching. And so Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them with a rebuke that would stir them into an angry frenzy, that would accelerate their treachery, that would result in his betrayal and crucifixion. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that when Jesus was crucified, he died for hypocrites on the cross of Calvary too, to redeem us from our sins. We're going to look at this in just two points this morning. We're going to talk about, we're going to see first the outing of their religious hypocrisy, and then we're going to look at the pronouncement of six woes of judgment. First of all, the outing of their religious hypocrisy. Well, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite, even the word in Greek, hypocrites, denotes an actor, a stage player, someone who wears a mask. A hypocrite is someone who is outwardly pretending to be something that they are not. In this case, the Pharisees pretended to be godly, but they were far from the Lord and wicked at heart. Jesus had been teaching the multitudes in our text in Luke 11 here, and the crowds kept gathering to him, and they kept wanting to see a sign. But what Jesus told them was that the sign they really needed was the light of the gospel. They needed him. As he was teaching, a Pharisee invited him to dinner. And when Jesus arrived, he reclined at the table, ready to eat. But the Pharisee was horrified that Jesus first did not go over and wash his hands as prescribed in the rabbinic writings. Now, we do want to understand here, the Pharisees had no concern whatsoever for personal hygiene. They were concerned with ceremonial purity. And so before they had anything to eat, they were to have water poured over their hands two different times. And, and in the writing of the, uh, of the rabbis, it had to be in a very specific way. It had to be poured first on their hands and then on their arms and their wrists. If it were poured on their arms and wrists first, then they weren't considered clean. 
And so there was a very prescribed procedure for having water poured over their hands two different times in a special way to remove the defilement gained by their contact with the sinful world. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He just came in and sat down ready to eat. Jesus also knows the hearts of all men. And so he not only saw the horrified look on his host's face, he knew the man's thoughts and how he had taken offense at his failure to wash. So Jesus took that moment, perhaps before the dinner even began, to bring the darkness of the Pharisees' hypocrisy into the light. Again, Jesus had not done anything morally wrong, nor had he violated a single tenet of the ceremonial law of God given in the Old Testament. The law of God said nothing about washing up for dinner. But the religious leaders had effectively added a whole series of man-made laws to the Jewish system and elevated their laws to the same place as Holy Scripture. And we can understand this from our own heart, right? Because we can all do the same thing. We can do the same thing in our hearts. You and I know this well. You and I have all kinds of different opinions about different things. We have very strong opinions on what people should wear or not wear, what they should eat or not eat, how they should run their house or not run their house, how they should raise their children, how they should spend their money, what political positions they ought to take, what kind of authors they should read and not read. And we even, each of us, we even believe that we have good spiritual reasons for our opinions. And so we feel justified in pushing our perspectives on others and being offended by them when they don't do what we want. But as we see here, brothers and sisters, taking offense is not necessarily a sign of holiness. In fact, taking offense is often a sign of great immaturity and even of great hypocrisy. Here's the bottom line. We are being hypocrites when we are more concerned with outward appearances than inward godliness. We are being hypocrites when we are more concerned with outward appearances than inward godliness. That's why Jesus said what he said here in our text in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And, and we can picture this, what Jesus is saying, right? Many of us in the room drink coffee, or if not, you probably drink some other substance, maybe sweet tea, maybe something else. And we've all forgotten that one tumbler, you know, with the lid on that we forgot somewhere. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was somewhere back in the kitchen counter where we left something sit like for over a week. And, and you remember going over and taking the lid off of it and looking inside and, you know, there, there was fur growing in there, Right? So imagine taking that cup and you go over to the sink and you dump the contents in and you proceed to wash the outside. And then you pour yourself a new cup of coffee and drink. It's disgusting, right? The outside is nowhere near as dirty as the inside. That's what the Pharisees did. They strictly did all manner of things to look holy and pious and clean on the outside, but inside they were full of greed and wickedness. They had top-notch religious appearances and very clean hands, evidently, but very unclean hearts. 
So Jesus continued in verse 40, You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, God made us and what we are inside is just as important to him as what we are outside. You're a fool if you think your soul is any less important than your body. So Jesus said in verse 41, But give us alms these things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Alms, what are alms? Alms are those things that you give away in service to the Lord. Jesus is telling them that they needed to repent of, to give away, or to hand over the wickedness within themselves. To give all of themselves to the Lord, and then everything would be clean for them. And this is the message that's the heart of everything, isn't it, brothers and sisters? If we would be free from sin, we must take our sins to the one who bears them on the cross. God alone, through faith in Christ, is the one who cleanses us, body and soul. He is the one who cleanses us of our pride, cleanses us of our hypocrisy, cleanses us of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. 1 John 1, beginning of verse 7 the Apostle John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the beauty of the gospel. We have a Savior, brothers and sisters, in whom there was no guile. There was never any hypocrisy in the person of Jesus. What he was on the outside was a direct reflection of what he was on the inside. Pure, holy, a man who loved his father, who loved people, even people who were his enemies. A man who rightly denounced hypocrisy among the religious of his day. And a man who would ultimately lay down his life in sincerity and truth as a demonstration of God's love to redeem us from sin, to give us the promise of eternal life. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light. That takes us then to the pronouncement of six woes of judgment. Jesus has already outed the Pharisees now at this point for their hypocrisy, and now he goes right for the jugular, if you will. He goes right to the Pharisees, lest they, lest they miss the implications. He goes right to dealing with specific things that they did that demonstrated their hypocrisy. And as we look at what he says to the Pharisees, we can very easily see areas where we struggle with hypocrisy as well. As we go through these six woes, in fact, I'm going to bring them to bear as lessons for us. Number one, we are hypocrites if we are more concerned about inconsequential minutiae than we are about the greater things that matter to God. We are hypocrites if we are more concerned about inconsequential minutiae than we are about the greater things that matter to God. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These are the things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The book of Deuteronomy specified that grain and wine and oil should be tithed, but Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30 took it even further to tithing the very spices and herbs that grow in the garden. 
As a result of that text, the religious leaders had, of course, developed a system for exactly how far tithing should go. They even tithed mint and rue and some of the other most common garden herbs. And we must understand the fact that Jesus here is not condemning that practice in and of itself. What he condemns is the fact that the religious leaders are so concerned with keeping up with those minor things, while at the same time they're neglecting the most central commands of God, the weightier provisions to do justice and to love God. In fact, the whole of their lives and ministries reflected that they were only interested in their self and their own agenda, not listening to Jesus and humbling themselves and repenting and following the Lord. They didn't even treat the people entrusted to their care right. They took advantage of the sheep that they shepherded rather than laying down their lives in sacrifice to serve them. They neglected the weightier provisions of justice and the love of God, yet these were the very things that God desires. In these most central realities of the life of godliness, if those things are present, then those more peripheral matters will follow suit. And so the religious leaders had their priorities completely mixed up. They were focusing down here on the small things and completely neglecting the larger things that were most critical. They were unjust and unloving, but they tied their herbs. Remember the words of Micah 6, beginning of verse 6, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what the Pharisees did not do. But as we think about this form of hypocrisy, brothers and sisters, once again, we can see the complete opposite in Christ our Savior. You know, the religious leaders would often accuse Christ of breaking their man-made laws. One of the ones where they liked to accuse him the most was breaking the laws of the Sabbath, right? He was accused often of working on the Sabbath when he was not supposed to. But each time Jesus responded, he told the Pharisees that compassion was the greater law. He loved God and he loved people. And he didn't allow the minutia, especially the minutia of man-made things, to keep him from those greater deeds of justice and compassion and mercy. That's what we are called to as well. Secondly, we are hypocrites when we crave for people to recognize our spiritual accomplishments. We are hypocrites when we crave for people to recognize our spiritual accomplishments. Look at verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You know, in the synagogues, the chief seats or the seats of honor were the seats closest to the sacred scrolls of the law. You know, in the Baptist church, our sacred seats, I think, are at the back because those are the ones that fill up most and first, right? But in the synagogue, it was the front. Everyone wanted to be up front, near the rabbi, near the written law. And so those seats were usually reserved for, for visiting religious dignitaries or, or the elders of the village. Well, the Pharisees loved to be welcomed to those seats of honor whenever they would attend the synagogue. They loved those places of importance in front of the people. And, and you know, they also craved respectful greetings in the public square. 
You know, the Pharisees, they didn't like it when someone would just greet them outside going, Hey, Joe, how you doing? No. The Pharisees, they wanted to be greeted with, Well, greeting, most honorable reverend doctor, sir. They particularly liked the title rabbi, which originally was a title of respect. It means my teacher or my master. Jesus was called this. But the religious leaders had reinterpreted the title rabbi to represent a place of highness or exaltedness to which others were subservient to. They sought to exalt themselves in the eyes of men rather than exalting God. And these are opposing interests. As Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And that's who we are as disciples. We are bondservants of Christ. We are not to be religious showmen. We are not to live for the applause of men. We are not to seek to, to gain the accolades of men for our intense displays of spirituality. Just look to Christ again, brothers and sisters. Did he seek the accolade of men? No. Almost from, from the time of his birth, he was hated by the very people that should have received him with open arms. Everything he did was just the opposite. He did everything for the glory of his Father. He humbled himself. He laid down his life. He allowed other men to speak evil of him. Philippians 2, we see that he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross to die for the very people who scoffed at him and mocked him. What's the third type of hypocrite we see here? Thirdly, we are hypocrites when we are spiritually dead inside and no one knows it, and maybe we don't even know it ourselves. We are hypocrites when we're spiritually dead inside and no one knows it, and maybe we don't even know it ourselves. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. You know, according to Numbers 19.16, any Israelite who touched a grave was ceremonially unclean for seven days. And this is why the practice in Israel at that time was to carefully whitewash the graves so that people would notice them and stay away from them. What Jesus is effectively saying to the Pharisees is that for all their outwardly portrayed religious devotion, they were spiritually dead and rotten on the inside. And therefore, they were contaminating influences. They told people to follow their spiritual example because they supposedly knew the way to holiness. But in reality, they were leading people to spiritual deception and death. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was deadly to other people's souls. You know, it's not hard to see this in Christendom today. More and more we see pastors and leaders abandoning the core truths of the gospel in order to appeal and to reconcile themselves with the secular culture. We also find out that well-known Christians and even evangelical leaders have been engaging in gross sin over years and no one held them to account we have so many churches in our nation plagued by unregenerate membership that manifests itself in disunity and backbiting and anger. At every level, brothers and sisters, those people are hypocrites, leading the way to deception and death. And, but make no mistake, no matter how hard we 
try to hide such hypocrisy, God brings to the surface the condition of our hearts. As Kent Hughes said in his commentary, we can externally do all the right religious things, but we will ultimately impart what is within. The people around us will see the artificiality, the effectiveness, the elitism, the anger, the hostility, the hatred, the suspicion, the sourness, the inner blasphemies. We leave our fingerprints on each other's souls, either for Christ or for unbelief. It was that last line that was so poignant to me, so I want to read that again. We leave our fingerprints on each other's souls, either for Christ or for unbelief. What kind of fingerprints do you leave? What is the effect of your walk, your life? What is the condition of your soul? I asked at the beginning of my sermon, what it would be like, what do you think it would be like to hear Christ say to you that your soul is like an unmarked grave? Christ is the only way to have spiritual life, brothers and sisters. He is the only way. Jesus was always consistent in his character. The righteousness of his actions revealed the righteousness of his heart. Indeed, brothers and sisters, all other men may fail you. I may fail you. Any number of other pastors or evangelical leaders may fail you. Even the best of men are men at best. But Jesus will never fail us. And thankfully, Jesus is so powerful, he even works through failing men. Even when men treated Jesus their worst, Jesus was at his best, laying down his life even for the hypocrites who crucified him. He is our hope. It takes us to the fourth. We are hypocrites when we teach and enforce standards upon others that we ourselves will not follow. We're hypocrites when we teach and enforce standards upon others that we ourselves will not follow. Look at verses 45 and following. One of the lawyers answered him and said, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also. You feel insulted? I meant for you to hear this. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You see, the Pharisees were a fundamental religious party, but a lawyer was more of a professional occupation. And not like a lawyer like we understand, a professional in matters of the law, the laws of society today. The lawyers in the time of Christ were exactly what the name implies. They were specialists in the law of Scripture. They were the seminary professors when it came to the Old Testament and Jewish religious law. Some lawyers were Pharisees, some Pharisees were lawyers, but they weren't always the same. Hoping to stop Jesus from continuing his denouncements, a lawyer spoke up and said they were feeling insulted. And so Jesus included them in his denouncement as well. You see, the lawyers were the ones most directly responsible for adding fallible human regulations to the infallible word of God. 
They would take the law to honor the Sabbath and turn it into a hundred more specific laws. Again, you've heard me share this before. You know, most people in their homes had dirt floors, and the Pharisees even had minute regulations saying, you're not even allowed to pull a chair out from your table on the Sabbath day, lest the leg of the chair make a furrow in the dirt, and you be considered as doing farming on the Lord's day. I mean, that's how specific and, and the kind of minutia that they forced upon the people. And so what they did is they turned obeying the law of God when it should have been a delight, they turned it into an intense burden with all their minute interpretations and the extra-biblical system of laws they had developed. And these, these requirements were immensely heavy burdens to the people. But the religious leaders, the lawyers, showed no pity and they didn't offer any help. They would not so much as lift a finger to help their fellow man. Instead of helping and giving grace to people who were struggling, they just gave them more law. More law! But did they do that to themselves? No, for themselves, they gave themselves loopholes. But to the people, no, more law. Again, think of how many churches through the centuries have resorted to adding human laws to God's laws. You know, we, we have very legalistic churches in, in Baptist world. You know, you have primitive Baptist churches where, you know, no woman is ever allowed to put on makeup and no, no man can ever enter a sanctuary to worship unless he's wearing a coat and tie and, and long pants and so on and so forth. And there's regulations about how you have to keep your hair and how you have to do this and how you have to that. You know, even today, even today in, in the best, most biblical churches, Christians can struggle with making matters of personal conviction into laws that they seek to impress upon others. Paul had to address this in Colossians 2, beginning of verse 20. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, you can be doing all those things outwardly that look good and still have a heart that is devoid of Christ. That's the warning. Once again, what is the cure? Jesus is our cure. Jesus was no, no hypocrite. He called us to be holy, and he was holy. In fact, Jesus was holy for us. He called us to be pure, and Jesus was pure. And he didn't give himself any loopholes to that purity. Jesus did not add burdens to us through law he set us free to true loving obedience through grace. You see, brothers and sisters, more law, more regulation never saves. More law, more regulation, more man-made regulation, that only binds the conscience and it creates the appearance of godliness but a denial of God's power. Christ as we're united with Christ and resting in Christ and trusting in Christ, we are set free to true loving obedience through His grace. Number five, we are hypocrites when we claim to honor those who are godly and, let, and yet continue selfishly imbibing the rebellion of our own hearts. 
We are hypocrites when we claim to honor those who are godly and yet continue selfishly imbibing the rebellion of our own hearts. Jesus goes on, picking up at verse 47, to denounce the lawyers for how they were building the tombs of the prophets. You see, in the time of Christ, making memorial tombs for the prophets was considered a pious act. So the lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes, they would build these great memorials and shrines for the prophets, and they would wax eloquently about how if they had been alive during that previous time, they would have heeded the prophets and honored God. But Jesus knew their hearts. Their fathers killed the prophets. And with their hypocrisy, these guys made sure they were dead by building them tombs. Even at this very moment, these religious leaders were rejecting Christ. They were standing in opposition to the greatest prophet, priest, and king ever to walk the face of the earth. That's why Jesus says, look at verse 49, as the wisdom of God, Jesus is the wisdom of God. As the wisdom of God, Jesus said this was God's plan all along. He sent the prophets and the apostles knowing that they would be rejected and killed by his people and each one would add to the blood guilt of this generation. You know, the first righteous man murdered in the Bible was, of course, Abel. That's why he's mentioned here. His brother Cain was jealous that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and his wasn't. And so in a fit of jealous rage, he murdered his brother. That's in Genesis 4.8. And then Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada. In 2 Chronicles 24, he prophesied on behalf of the Lord right after the death of Jehoiada, and the people didn't like what, they had, what he had to say, and so they stoned him right there in the middle of the temple courts. And in the Hebrew canon, the book of 2 Chronicles was the last book in the Jewish Bible. So the first righteous man, Abel, and the last righteous man, Zechariah, they were murdered by the Jews from first to last. From first to last and almost everyone in between, the prophets were horribly persecuted. Now we can slip into this too, can't we? We can think highly of ourselves and say, well, if I had been there, I would have been fighting for Jesus. That's what Peter thought. And he ended up denying Christ. In our own pride, we can think we would do better, but brothers and sisters, we wouldn't. You and I would have either been screaming with the crowds crucifying him, or you and I would have been hiding in an alley somewhere away from the Roman mob. You know, Jesus, the Pharisees invited him to dinner. They pretended to honor him. They even showed restraint in front of the crowds because they were worried about arresting him if all the people were behind him. But in the end, they did finally secure his betrayal. In the end, they did finally crucify him. But as I said at the beginning, the good news is that when Jesus was crucified, he died even for the self-righteous hypocrites who drove the nails. He died for you and for me. Because if you don't see by now, what I mean you to see it is this. Every single one of us has a degree of hypocrite within us. Every time we sin, we prove it. Every single one of us needs the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He alone is the cure for the sin that ails us. The final thing we see here, we are hypocrites when we teach and preach and live in such a way that leads people away from the gospel instead of to the gospel. 
Woe to you, lawyers, verse 52, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus ends this passage with the greatest irony of the whole passage. The Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes, they were the official stewards of Scripture and teachers of the law in Israel. Because they had taught the Scriptures, they held the key of knowledge that would lead men to salvation. But with all their superfluous wrangling and denial of biblical truth, they had taken away this key of knowledge. In their pride and selfishness and rebellion against God, they denied Jesus, who is the key to eternal life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name given under, under heaven among men by which we must be saved. They would not admit this themselves, and they also sought to hinder anyone who is seeking to follow Jesus. You know, brothers and sisters, we also can hinder people from coming to Christ. How is it that we may take away the key of knowledge? Riken gives an excellent list for reflection in his commentary. We take away the key of knowledge when we fail to be clear and simple in telling people about Jesus. When we speak about the work of the church rather than the saving work of Christ. We take away the key of knowledge when we add works to faith as the basis of our standing before God. When we focus on our outward religious presentation rather than our inward spiritual transformation. We take away the key of knowledge when we treat the Bible as a text to be analyzed rather than the living word of God that is to be believed and obeyed. We take away the key of knowledge when we love to get caught up in complex theological arguments but resist being vitally connected to the person of Jesus Christ. We take away the key to knowledge when we so overemphasize one particular doctrine that we distort the message of salvation. We take away the key to knowledge when we confuse our Christianity with our politics. We take away the key to knowledge when in our fear and our indifference, we fail to live the gospel we say we believe. You know, we see in the final two verses of this text, verses 53 and 54, how these lawyers and Pharisees responded. They went out from there seeking to provoke and press him and catch him in some wrongdoing. They began to actively plot his downfall. Brothers and, brothers and sisters, that is what hypocrites will do. Those trapped in their hypocrisy will defend themselves to their dying breath and seek to put to death anyone who would dare challenge their hypocrisy. But Jesus, he always leads us in the truth. He is the truth. He lives the truth. Jesus is always laboring to give men the key of knowledge, the saving knowledge of himself. The good news is that Jesus died again for every hypocrite, every prideful person, every self-righteous person who is willing by his grace to bend the knee and confess their sin and turn from it. And that's the good news, isn't it? That the one whose soul is like an unmarked grave can be forgiven and born again in Christ. The one who is whether he means to be or not, such a corrupting influence upon others can become a trophy of the grace of Almighty God, 
And so I go back again to what it said in verse 41. Give alms, give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Brothers and sisters, give yourself to Christ. Your wants, your desires, your perceptions, your convictions, your problems, your difficulties. Some of you are here, you have problems with other people, you have problems with the church, you have problems in your home. You cannot claim to love Christ and persist in perpetuating those problems. Go to Christ. He will give you the new heart that you need to love, to honor, to be merciful, to walk without hypocrisy, to walk in the truth, to be holy, truly holy, depending wholly upon Him.